Well, good evening, everyone. So glad to have you here. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Steve. I'm helping out around here uh, at Sherwood. And uh, gosh, I'm just excited to get to share God's word with you. I consider it a privilege. And uh, it's exciting just because my wife and I have been here for about five months and just have gotten to hang out with a lot of you. So I'm just excited to get to share um, from God's word tonight and get to be with you all tonight. So I want to ask you a question. Do you guys remember that quote from Shakespeare, What's in a Name? I got Josh right in front of my English teacher saying yes. There it is. So the, the line officially goes, what's in a name? A rose by any other name would smell so sweet. So Juliet's saying that to Romeo. And if you remember the story, you have the Montagues and you have the Capulets, right? Warring families, feuding families. And Juliet, in the, the, the whimsicalness of love, says, Romeo, I don't care if you're a Montague. I'm going to love you. And I don't care about names. Names don't matter to me. Love is what ultimately matters. But yet, Shakespeare wrote that as a tragedy rather than a comedy. And so in the midst of that tragedy, what we come to find out is that names actually do matter. Warring parties between families actually do get in between relationships. So the reality is, a name means something. A name gives you an identity. A name gives you something to be called by. You, you would look at me, if you call me Cliff, I'm not going to turn around. But if you say, Steve, I'm turning around. Because Steve identifies me for who I am in the midst of it. By the way, I've got kids in my house, so if this is throwing you off, I'm, I'm totally, we're just going to keep pinch hitting. So we're going. We're totally going. We started. Say what? Just like home. Bucky said it too a couple weeks ago. It's like, this is just like my house. It's, just, it's totally fine. So, but in the midst of this, names do have meaning. So when I say the Kennedys, what do you think of? Tragedy. Say again? Tragedy. Tragedy, okay. If I say the KKK, what do you think of? Evil, racism. If I say Kardashian, what, don't tell me. Don't tell me. I don't want to know. But names have a meaning. And tonight we're going to look at a bunch of people in continuing our series in Genesis that cared about a name. And what happened to them because they cared about a name. So grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 11 tonight. And so I'm going to throw up this puzzle box on the screen here. And this puzzle box is kind of what all the Colossae campuses are going through. And this is the way that we can really take a look at the whole picture of Genesis and see what Genesis is all about. So as you look on the left, of kind of the first sections we've been through is the invitation section. And so in the invitation section, we see God revealing himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. The unity of relationship, the trinity of relationship. And what he does is he creates the world in beauty. And when he creates the world, he creates Adam and Eve in the garden and says, guys, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. He gives them a purpose. He gives them meaning. And what he does is he calls them into relationship with himself. He invites them in. He's the creator who made them and invites them into relationship. But yet a couple chapters later, we remember what happened when when the serpent came in and tempted Adam and Eve, and they fell away from God. And yet, at the end of that story, God covers them with animal skins and sends them out east. And when he sends them out east, he, he sends them off out of a deep care and a love for them, that they wouldn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so that they wouldn't become like God. They had a different plan, and yet God invited them into relationship. And then in Adam's generation, we see what happens is that, really, this is a rejected invitation. This is... Adam and his line because of his sin and just sinful decision after sinful decision after sinful decision when God continually draws them into relationship. So rejected really invitation is what happens in that second piece. Last week, Bucky covered Noah and the first kind of piece of disruption where there was so much evil in the land. Genesis 6 said that the thoughts of man's heart were only and 
continually. That's all it was. It was just evil. And so God decided to flood the earth and cause a disruption to really reboot, to really restart the creation mandate, right? Remember what Bucky said last week, Genesis 9, 1? The creation mandate is re-given back to Noah and said, guys, go, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And what happens to Noah is that as he's tilling the ground, as he is working the vine, he becomes drunk off the vine. And then he shames himself by laying naked in a tent and passing out. And his sons see that. And then there's cursing rather than blessing. And tonight we're going to continue the story of disruption and actually finish up this little piece of disruption here by talking about the generation of Shem. Now really, in your Bible, it's going to be Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So, but since we can't fit all that there, we decided to put Shem and call it good. So that's where we're going to be in here tonight. So we're going to start off actually in Genesis chapter 11, though. Though the story continues from 10, 9 on, all the way down to 11.32, we're going to start in chapter 11. The reason why we're starting in 11 is, chronologically speaking, if we were to put it this way, 11 comes before 10. 11 is the story that happens where 10 is the generations and really the result of what happens. So if you were to read it from 10 to 11, you'd see the generations and then just think of it like a flashback in your favorite show. You're just flashing back into seeing really the situation that caused all this. So we're going to start off here in Genesis 11, 1, 4, and it says this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. So as we start this, there's a couple of things that we should point out. Now, in a narrative, the whole purpose of narrative is to build tension, right? A good storyline has tension. If there's no tension, you don't want to watch the TV show, right? If there's not conflict, if there's not issues, you don't want to get involved. So, but as we start this, we're going to start seeing that it looks like the story is shifting. Because now they're all speaking one language. There's no such thing as communicational disorder. They're able to communicate and talk to one another. And then you'll notice in the text, it says they're migrating from the east, now, if you remember what happened in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 6, when God casted Adam and Eve out of the garden, where did he send them? East. And then also in 4, when Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, he went east. So if we were to look at this as a narrative, as a story, east is symbolizing moving away from God. And yet in the text here, you see that they're actually migrating from the east. So this is like a permanent move. They're, they're coming back. They're, they're building bricks and they're going to build a city and they're going to build a tower and they're going to do something and it looks like maybe they're coming back into relationship with God. Maybe, maybe Noah's sons learned from Noah's disruption and just decided to, hey, you know, let's, let's pursue God again. That's kind of the picture we have in this text and yet we get to verse 4 and it comes to a screeching halt. Verse 4 says that, come and let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You see, verse 4 shows them their true intent. You see the first personal pronoun, they're saying, let us, let us, let us, let us. It's about them building something for themselves rather than for God. It's about them pursuing their own dreams rather than pursuing God's dream. 
says, let us make bricks. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower. Let us make a name for ourselves, or else we'll be dispersed amongst all the earth. The first three are like selfish pursuit. This is what they want. This is what they want. And the last one, or else we'll be dispersed amongst all the earth, is self-preservation. They're looking after their own interests. And you see, what's interesting with these towers is that these towers were very familiar during Mesopotamian times. These towers had anywhere between three to seven levels of height. And really, as you went up each terrace, you got closer and closer to the gods. So in the ancient Hebrew mindset, the closer you are to heaven, the closer you are to the gods. And so as they're building a tower, they're essentially saying, hey, we are great. We're building this tower. We're getting close to the heavens. And the closer we are to the heavens, the closer we are with God. So they're really soothing themselves and making themselves feel better about their decisions they're pursuing. And yet, the vain pursuit of this people is exposed. They desire to do all of this without God. Now remember, this is an oral tradition society, right? I would hope that Noah would tell his sons, hey, do you remember what happened in the flood? Do you remember what happened when there was evil about the land? What did God have to do to get rid of this evil? He had to flood the earth. He had to get rid of it. He had to reboot the whole thing in order to keep evil from starting again. You'd think in an oral tradition that they'd pass that story down and that story would matter. But it doesn't look like that's the case here. They may have passed that story down, but evil perpetuates again. It starts again. They're focused on self rather than focused on God. And this is the sin of the people. They're making a name for themselves. They did not want to live in beautiful relationship with God. They wanted a city for residence and protection. Again, in that day and age, a city was a fortress. It was protection. A lot of people in Jewish society would build a city on a hill because nobody could attack them. They'd have to come up the hill. So the city is this idea of protection. And the tower is the closeness to the gods. And yet they're doing this all for themselves. And you see, I think the interesting part about this text is that they did not accept the name that they were given, and they chose to build a name outside of God. You see, when God made Adam and Eve, he gave them his very image. He gave them this crowning quality above all else. That, that people are, are more glorious than trees and mountains and oceans. That people are really the crown of God's creation because they carry what? His image. They carry him essentially all throughout the world. But they were denying their identity as God's people. And they were wanting for a new and better name. They didn't need their own name. They didn't need to have a name. But they chose to have a name separate from God. They carried God's name. That was what identified them. They were God's people. And this is why they said, let us make a name for ourselves. Because not only are they rejecting the relationship they have with God, but they're rejecting the mission that God had sent them on. To to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and make it God's kingdom and make every person aware that God is real. And see, this is just a rejected opportunity. They had an opportunity to, to do something for the name of God, and yet they did it for the name of themselves. And that's the heartbreaking part about this text. And yet, as we look, let's see how God responds in this narrative. Let's see what God has to say. Verse 5 said this, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. Now, that's just literally just telling what God did. The Lord came down, he saw the city, he saw the tower, which the children of man had built. But yet, in Hebrew, there's the play on words here. Because remember, verse 4 they built the tower where to the top of the heavens, didn't they? 
They built it to the very highest they could. And yet when Moses is writing this, he wants to point out something unique about God and their relationship. Though the tower was high, the Lord had to what? The Lord had to come down to see it. The Lord had to step off of his throne, so to speak, to use that anthropomorphic language. And he stepped off and he came down to see their mighty high tower. And I think that shows two things. It shows, really, the frailty and how small the attempts of the man, of mankind was to build something. But it also shows the vast greatness of God. It shows that even in man's best attempts to reach God, God still has to come down. God still has to invade in order to have a relationship. This is also position as well as relationship. This is God saying, look, guys, you're not God. You're not able to be as great and mighty as me. And yet, because of your brokenness, I'm still going to come down and see what you did. I'm still going to come down and pursue relationship with you in the midst of this. God literally had to come down to see their best attempts. I just love that Moses did that because it just shows just the difference between the Lord and these people. And let's see how the Lord continues to respond. Verse 6 says this. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They all have one language. And this is the only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not be understanding one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So here the Lord emphasizes their position. They are one people with one language. And really, this isn't like a recognition of what they're capable of. Because if God had to come down and see the tower, obviously they're not really capable of anything great apart from him. Essentially, what Moses is trying to say is that there's really no end to their sinfulness. What they can accomplish sinfully is just going to keep perpetuating and perpetuating and perpetuating. Their sin is going to greatly increase. And their union is in direct rebellion to God's plan. They're united to live independently of God. And as we've seen in Genesis so far, God's faithful to his plan. What his plan is will come across. So since God was faithful to his promise to not subject the earth to futility again and flood the earth, what he decided to do is confuse their language. Now, has there ever been a time where you were not able to communicate? Whether you lost your voice, whether you're in another country, and you're not able to to have that interaction. Um, A couple years back in 2007, I was with a a missions agency called Greater Europe Mission. And we were in Sweden, and we were learning to start churches amongst uh, Muslim communities. And so when we, all of the Greater Europe Mission Conference came to Hungary, and they settled in Hungary for a week and had their conference. And so a bunch of us just decided, hey, let's go grab lunch, let's go in the city and shop for trinkets or whatever. And so we go, and I get on the bus, and I'm just, I just get sick as a dog. I just start feeling like I'm going to throw up. I just feel, like, I just feel horrible, like fever's hitting me. And I'm just like, you know what, like any American, I'm just going to stay on this bus, because it's probably just going to have a loop, right? Just going to go back to where you start. So I don't know where I'm at, but like, hey, I'm just going to, I'm going to use my logic here, and I'm just going to just stay on the track. And then one by one, I see people getting off. And then now it's just me and the bus driver, and I have no idea where we are. And so all of a sudden, we pull into the bus depot, and he turns around and goes, off. (laughs) And I'm like, off? 
you mean off, like I have to get off the bus? And so, so I'm in the middle of Hungary. I have no idea where I am. I'm like pulling out my wallet, just like, hey, um, where, where's the bank? Where's a telephone? Like I, I need to call somebody, and nobody's responding to me. It was literally one of the most panic-filled moments of my life. I'm in an Eastern European country where their language is horrible, and I don't know how to speak it, and I'm just like, I'm totally lost. And so I pray. I'm like, God, I am lost here. I need to get out of this situation. And so literally about 30 seconds after I prayed that, two guys from the conference pulled around in the car, and I just book it after them. I'm, just like, I'm literally the guy waving them down like, take me back to the hotel. So in that moment when I could not communicate, it was so imagine this. Imagine you're building the Tower of Babel. Imagine you're building this great city, this great tower. You're laying bricks next to a guy, and then all of a sudden you can't understand what he's saying. And then it's just like trying to play duck, duck, goose. Who's on your team? Who's not on your team? Where's the line? Like, do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't, I don't know. And then you just gather up. You know, like that one-card poker game where you just put the ace of spades on there? Who are, who's the other aces? you got to find them? Like the, that's what I just imagine happening. And they, they gather together, and then they're dispersed amongst all the land, and the panic that they felt was probably very real. And the fear that they felt was probably very real, until they found the people of the right language, but then they dispersed. And then they went over all the earth. You see, this is what God chose to do in light of mankind. When man sets himself up against God, God wins. When man decides to do whatever man decides to do in his own flesh and God has a plan that's not according to that, God will work and God will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Now the creation mandate continues. But the creation mandate doesn't continue willingly, it continues forcefully. The people of God didn't want to follow God and so in this building of the tower and building of the city, God had to bring a form of grace to them. And that grace sent them out. That grace was confusing, and they didn't understand it as grace, but yet God was setting things up for what was to come in the midst of this story. So now we're going to jump back into chapter 10. Okay, so flip back in your Bibles to chapter 10. We're not going to have the, the, them on the screen real quick. I'm just going to run through a couple of the reasons why, you know, chapter 10 really does come uh, after chapter 11. From the sons of Japheth, in Genesis 10:5, it says this, from these coastland peoples spread in their lands, with each their own language by their own clans and their own nations. And so from the sons of Ham, in Genesis 10.20, it says this. These are the sons of Ham, by their own clans and their own languages and their own lands and their own nations. Now what's interesting in Ham's generation is that there's all these wicked nations that come up because of Ham's generation. Egypt is in there. Canaan is in there. Nineveh's in there. The Philistines are in there. So Nineveh is obviously from the Jonah story. Um, you have the Philistines when Israel's going into the promised land. There's these giants. The Philistines are those guys. And then you had a guy named Nimrod. Great name for a son. So just put that down in your book. He becomes the king over Babel. Looks like his group was really the one that kind of just stayed put. So when the spreading happened, Nimrod and his team just took over Babel and they stayed there. But you know, then you have these last two statements in Genesis 10.31 and 10.32, which says this. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And finally, the summarizing statement linking all of this back to Noah. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. 
So this is the end of what's happening. And then what we're going to find out at the end of chapter 11, you see Terah's generation. That's where we're going next. And next week, we're going to hear a lot about Abram and how all of this set up Abram for what God was intending to do. Now we're going to jump into that Foundations of Restoration section next week, where we're going to figure out what that's all about. But in the midst of it, I wanted to throw up this verse from Psalm 33. It says this, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plan of the peoples. There's something beautiful here. There's something unique here. It shows God's sovereignty. That God has a plan that above all else will succeed. And if there are people on the earth that is not happening according to his plan, he will frustrate it. He will frustrate the plans of the people. And the beautiful thing is that this puts God outside of my box. I put God where he's comfortable, where I understand him, but this throws me for a loop. Because God will sometimes enter into human history and frustrate the plans of his people for his causes. And that's something in this disruption section that really does matter. His plan cannot be thwarted. So in light of hearing this story, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the Old Testament is meant for our instruction. So as we hear this, what, what does this mean for us? And I think, I think there's three things that I kind of want to walk away with. First, God is committed to his plan, his promise, and his people. God is at work for what's best for his people. Deeply rooted relationship with him. Regardless of how people have responded, Adam and Eve running away, Cain and Abel, Noah, the flood, Tower of Babel, God is faithful to his people. He loves his people. He cares for his people. And his relationship with his people is not dependent upon his people. Isn't that beautiful? Doesn't that bring joy to your heart? That at the end of the day, when you're so aware of your own failures, your own faults, your own sins, isn't it beautiful that by grace you're loved? That's a beautiful, beautiful gift. And that's what we've got to remember today, is that God's faithful to you and I as well. He's faithful to his plan. Again, he's sovereign. You know, the beauty of reading the Old Testament is that we have perspective, right? Like, we can look back and see what God has done, but we don't have that perspective in our own lives, do we? We don't know what's ahead. We don't know what's coming. But yet, in the midst of that, we can look back and see how God has reacted in his character and responded in his character and have hope for our future. Because God is faithful today, yesterday, and forever. That's who Jesus Christ is to us. And see, and God is at work according to his promise. He promised he wasn't going to flood the earth again. That was his promise. He said he's not going to do that. So God is faithful to his word. He's not going to go beyond what he's supposed to say. He's going to say what he's supposed to say, when he's going to say it. And because of that, we're going to live in light of that. And that's what makes this part beautiful about this story, is that God is committed to his plan and his promise and his people. Second point is this. Making a name versus receiving a name. This is the issue of the text, guys. This is the issue. This is an issue of identity. And this is the same question that we get asked today. If we're honest, this is our struggle, isn't it? 
We want to make something of ourselves. We want to make our reputations matter. We want to do something to be remembered. You know, like, what was that bumper sticker? It's like, well-behaved women never make history. It's like, that's like one of those same things. You just want to, you know, make a name for yourself. We want to be that self-made man, self-made woman that, like, you can be like Bear grills in any situation. You can conquer it. Like, you're just that type of person. You want to have the most Instagram followers, the most likes on Facebook, the most retweets on Twitter. And for what? For your glory. For your glory. Here's the crazy thing. We don't need to make a name for ourselves. We've been given a better one. However great you want to make your name, it's minuscule in comparison to the name that God has given you as a son and a daughter and dearly loved. I mean, think of this. I said this earlier, but human beings are the crown of creation. Like, the Northwest is beautiful. I'm five months into the Northwest, and it is just beautiful. L.A. is not beautiful. Oregon is beautiful. Like, there is just majesticness all around. Oceans, mountains, trees. Like, we see that stuff, and Psalm 8 says, doesn't that reflect the glory of God, the majesty of God? But then David said also in that Psalm, God, how can you be mindful of me in the midst of this beauty? He's mindful of us because we are the crown. We are the crown of his creation. We're the ones who carry his image. See, as God's people, we're loved, we're chosen, we're adopted into his family, we're given a better name from sinner to saint, from broken to restored, from rejected to rescued. But here's the question for us. Do we really want to receive a better name? Do we want that? Do we want to receive a better name? Because at the end of the day, we will never have a name as great as being God's son or God's daughter. Our renown, no matter how awesome you become, will never be as special as being loved by Father, Son, and Spirit. If you feel like you need to make your name great, maybe you haven't embraced how great God really is and how great he greatly loves you. God is lovingly revealing a lack in your life. It could be right now. It could be the Holy Spirit is just saying, yeah, that's me. I just want to make a name for myself. You're right. Internally, I may not say that out loud, but internally I want to. The beautiful thing is that God will not allow you to continue in that. He's going to bring circumstances in your life and trials and situations to really peel that away in order to get to your heart and remind you that it's always better to receive his name rather than make one of your own. And finally, receiving a name means living as image bearers. You see, this is where our mindset shifts. This is where everything changes. If you agree with number two, that it's better to receive a name rather than make a name, then receiving a name means that you are now an image bearer of God. God has chosen you to reveal himself throughout this world and to make his name great. And remember what Philippians says? The name of Jesus Christ is the greatest name above every name. He's the name above all names. And that's the name that ultimately matters. So as God's image bearers now, we get to put the name of Jesus on display for people. And this affects your work, this affects your home, this affects your world. In your workplace, it doesn't matter how good you are at your job or how bad you are at your job anymore. You go into your job not trying to please your boss, but please Jesus. You go into your job realizing that there's people who are broken and hurting and in need of you to be that image bearer, to show what loving kindness looks like, to show what servanthood looks like, to choose the worst job on the team project so that you can show Jesus. 
in your home, for our children, being an image bearer, our kids watch us all the time. We get the opportunity to demonstrate love and forgiveness. And, and when, we, when we fail, we're able to go to our kids and say, honey, sweetheart, I, I'm repenting. I'm daddy, and I need Jesus too. And I get to demonstrate that to my kids, that I'm not awesome, that I'm in need. That I'm in need of the Savior. With our spouses, as image bearers, we can be the first to forgive rather than expecting them to seek forgiveness. That's living a lot like an image bearer in your relationship. That you're, just, you're sharing that God pursues, God loves. So if you're in a fight, you pursue. You don't run away in selfishness. You pursue them because that's like Jesus. And then for our world, you can be bold for the sake of Jesus now, right? Because as an image bearer, you're bearing the image of the man who was rejected, right? So when you face rejection, you are in union with him. And the beautiful thing is that God uses that brokenness and, that, and really that neediness to demonstrate his beauty. And guys, we are at a beautiful time in our church plan, aren't we? We're four weeks in. This is the time for us to be bold. This is the time for us to be invitational. This is the time for us to open our homes in hospitality to show the deep love of God for the stranger. Now is the time for us to seize this opportunity to be image bearers of God. Because if we do it now, we're going to do it five years from now. We're going to do it ten years from now. If we set the culture right now, it's going to keep continuing later. And this is the beauty of this text. Is that tonight we've been given a chance. And that chance is either making a name or receiving a name. So I'm going to have Marcus come up and we're going to sing. But I'm just, Marcus, can you just play for like a minute, dude? Just, just play, hit the lights. Like, let's just take a moment and think about what God's doing. The beautiful part about this is that it's God's word. And that when God's word is taught, the Holy Spirit's going to do something. So I just want you to take a moment and think on this. Think about God's greatness. Think about your neediness of him. And if you've been that person who's, who's made a name for yourself and that's been what you've been about, God gives us this beautiful gift of repentance, right? That we get to have union with him and closeness with him even in the midst of our own brokenness. So would you just take a moment and spend just a moment with the Lord? And just let him speak to you about this.